Welcome to Bioethics in the Margins. We are a group of bioethicists from different institutions across the country. This podcast represents our views and those of our guests, but we do not speak for our universities or medical centers, nor for any formalized bioethics organizations. Our mission is to bring marginalized topics and voices into the bioethics discourse. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Amelia Barwise, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Biomedical Ethics at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Kirk Johnson, Assistant Professor of Justice Studies and Medical Humanities at Montclair State University. Please enjoy this conversation. Hello, uh, welcome to another episode of Bioethics in the Margins. Um, we're really excited to have Ryan Marshall Felder here. Uh, Ryan is a Clinical Ethics Fellow at the Stanford Center for Biomedical Ethics. His research focuses on, among other things, the ethical dimensions of clinical communication. He earned his PhD from the Graduate Center uh, City University of New York in 2021, and his writing has appeared in journals such as the Hastings Center Report and the Journal of Applied Philosophy. So let's give a great uh, bioethics in a war, bioethics in the margin welcome uh, to Ryan uh, Felder. So we're so happy to have you with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Awesome, awesome. So yeah, let's dive in. Um, so I know that your area of um, expertise study and research is epistemic injustice. So for our listeners, can you please explain uh, what is epistemic injustice? Yeah, yeah, of course. So um, so epistemic injustice is, uh, is a part of a movement in philosophy right now, uh, which is my, my background philosophy rather than bioethics um, initially. Um, uh, this movement of what's called social epistemology to bring new awareness to the social dimensions of human knowledge um, and sort of moving it past some of the traditional philosophical ways of talking about the concept of knowledge that really, you know, privilege attempts to provide analyses of what knowledge is um, and to make them sort of immune from criticism and from counterexamples. And so uh, epistemic injustice is a field within this attempt to say, well, knowledge is best conceived of as a social practice and as something that people do with each other rather than something that um, we analyze as a matter of philosophical, uh, as, as, a, as a philosophical matter. Um, so epistemic injustice, let me just say also, I'll give the, the sort of basic definition, which is the idea that um, an epistemic injustice is a wrong to a person in this central capacity as a knower, right? As a giver and a creator of knowledge. Um, so I think the key insight underlying this traditional definition of the term is that humans really have this core capacity in a certain kind of way, which is to be able to participate in the processes of giving and creating knowledge. Um, and it's connected to this idea that by um, participating in these what we might call knowledge practices of explaining one's own beliefs and of deciding with other people what concepts mean um, that that's a really core dimension of being a member of a mutually respecting human community right as a group of people that uh, that recognize each other as uh, as morally valuable Right. So the idea of epistemic injustice, as I have been understanding it, is that an epistemic injustice is 
uh, a wrong that occurs to somebody that leaves them less able to participate in this sort of crucial human function, right, of giving and creating knowledge. Um, so the, the core idea is really that it's a specific kind of wrong that happens to people in that capacity. Um, so there are, um, you know, sort of in this, in this classic philosophical framework, as it's kind of been, been around there for the last 20 or so years, uh, there's usually viewed as being two kinds of epistemic injustice, or two key, um, key varieties of this thing. Um, and this is a distinction that has been outlined in probably the primary contribution of uh, Miranda Fricker's 2007 book on the topic that um, although it takes place against, you know, a backdrop of people having similar conversations, it's really been a watershed in like coalescing this idea of epistemic injustice as a as a research program that's now happening, being done by, you know, hundreds of people all over the world at, at different academic centers. Um, so as Fricker distinguishes these different kinds of epistemic injustice, um, it falls into really two major categories. And other commentators have proposed other ones, but we'll focus on, on Fricker's formulation because it's still standard. Um, so the first kind of epistemic injustice is an epistemic injustice in the giving of knowledge, right? In transmitting knowledge. Um, this is what, uh, what sometimes in... Um, in philosophical discourse on social epistemology is called testimony, right? The idea that I give knowledge by offering people uh, reports of the beliefs that I hold. And this can be with things just as, you know, so mundane as, you know, I'm wearing a gray, gray t-shirt or something like that. Um, so testimony is a sort of term of art that's basically any any act of giving information to somebody else, you know, sort of in, in a... Um, uh, any act of giving information, really. Uh, so a testimonial injustice is a, a wrong that happens to somebody from their, from their ability to give testimony and to have their testimony be believed. So with all that said, I think um, a couple of key sort of terms have to be defined in order to actually define the concept of testimonial injustice, right? So... Testimonial injustice is really about, like, prejudiced credibility attributions. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, when I say something like, my t-shirt is gray, people around me, when they decide whether to believe me, kind of make an estimation about how likely I am to be right about that, right? When you say something just really basic, people, people think to themselves, you know, is this person likely to be correct or not? Should I believe this person? Um, and when it concerns a sentence like my t-shirt is gray, you know, if you weren't looking at me on the on the video right now, you might say, well, hmm, Ryan's best place to know, like, what the color of his t-shirt is, right? Ryan put his t-shirt on today. So he's the one who's likely to actually know whether the t-shirt the is gray or not. And so when you hear that, you attribute a lot of credibility to me, right? You say, well, Ryan's really likely to know that. And so I'm really likely to believe Ryan when he says that. So the idea of testimonial injustice is that when people give testimony about really important things or really high stakes things, 
we're making those same kinds of credibility attributions to people, and we sometimes do it in prejudicial ways, right? So, um, so the first, um, so the so what I'd say the definition of testimonial injustice is is the idea that people experience injustice when hearers kind of attribute to them prejudicial lack of credibility. And that's to say when, because of a prejudice, a hearer, somebody who's listening to somebody else talk, is likely to not believe what that person is saying because they prejudicially believe they are uh, not credible. So what, uh, what Fricker in the book calls a credibility deficit, right? The idea that we make uh, deficient credibility attributions of people um, based on uh, prejudicial features. Um, so I think this is all really abstract, and I'm going to just really quickly walk through a, a simple example of how this works, because I think it's easier. And as I said uh, um, uh, before we started recording, this is actually a common example, and it's outlined way, way, way better than I'm going to outline it right now in uh, Jada Wiggleton Little's uh, talk on this this podcast, actually. That was the uh, previous episode. So this is the example of um, the experiences that many women have had of not being believed when they tell doctors that they have really bad menstrual pain, right? Really bad cramps during, um, during, the, during the period, right? So in that situation, doctors sometimes hear that and say, oh, well, that's just, just what a period feels like, right? They say things like that. Um, and so what, uh, what people then often say in the epistemic injustice space is that, well, that might actually not be true, right? There could be a medical problem causing a worse period than normal, right? Like, so from a clinical perspective, there's some reason to investigate, right? To try to figure out why, why is this person reporting normal, quote unquote, normal pain, uh, to a doctor, right? And, um, you know, we know that this, sometimes does track really serious medical problems that need addressing. Um, so when, when clinicians hear those reports and they impose this framework of, of just cramps or something like that, and then form an assumption that the person who is telling them about this is less credible and less worthy of sort of being believed in that moment as saying, I need medical care for this situation. Um, it's argued that that is a, a testimonial injustice, right? Because it's a credibility deficit being placed onto this person due to prejudice about what it appropriately feels like to have a period or something like that. Um, so we're talking about um, other kinds of things, and I'll just say them really quickly, right? So a classic example, again, is uh, black patients often report reporting pain symptoms to providers and being not believed about that due to various prejudices in um, in our cultural uh, cultural imaginary, so to speak, um, sort of like, um, you know, black patients are thick skinned, right? And they feel less pain. So when they report pain experiences, they're prejudicially disbelieved, right? So that would count as a testimonial injustice as well, because we have a situation where because of what what we call prejudice in that situation, a person's being uh, attributed uh, credibility that's not warranted, right? They're being attributed too little credibility than we should, because when somebody reports pain, that's really serious and we need to listen to that, right? 
So that's, those are sort of a couple of classic cases of what's called testimonial injustice. I'll say also, and then I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I've talked a lot, so, uh, so I want to get, okay. uh, get a little bit more specific with examples here as well. Um, so um, Fricker says there's essentially two varieties of t- epistemic injustice. I've just explained what the testimonial injustices are, but Fricker also says that there are these things called hermeneutical injustices and that's kind of like a like a big word and uh i don't know if people if people actually know what that means so hermeneutics is a subfield of philosophy that's concerned with interpretation of texts like any written work and also um, interpretation of experiences right social contexts and things like that so fricker says that because of prejudice, people can be excluded from interpreting their experiences or interpreting socially important concepts, right? So um, what's an example of that? So um, I, I, I'm forgetting the name of the author right now, but there was a really terrific paper that came out a couple of years ago about uh, conflicts that have been had in the autistic community over being labeled as diseased, right? So um, many people who are on the autism spectrum don't actually see themselves as having a disease. They see themselves as sort of having neuro neurodiverse cognition. That's just very different than what um, neurotypicals, so to speak, have. Um, and it's been argued that when healthcare and medicine comes in and says autism is a disease and we want to treat it medically, um, that people who are autistic are actually being excluded from interpreting what autism is and what autism means. So um, that's the kind of example that we're talking about when we're talking about hermeneutical injustices, right? Um, Social interpretation of what our concepts mean being sort of prejudicially doled out, right? Clinicians being given um, disproportionately disproportionate power in defining what autism is and whether autism counts as a disease. Whereas when you look at the people who have it, there's actually not unanimity about it. Some people say autism is something different than a disease. It's it's rather neurodiversity. Um, and so when the predominant prevailing narratives in healthcare and bioethics say autism is a disease, the people who say it isn't and who say it's neurodiversity may be being excluded from determining what autism actually is um, and what it means. And so that's a kind of injustice is a key claim that Fricker would make in that in that space and that many bioethicists who have written about this topic have. Again, I don't remember the name of the of the author, but it's a it's a really good piece to sort of say, um, you know, uh, if people who are autistic are saying that they don't have a disease, that they have neurodiversity, are we wronging them if we tell them that actually you're wrong, you do have a disease and we're going to use medicine to treat you? Right. Some people say, yes, that the, that is a wrong. And so that's kind of the under the under the umbrella of what we're talking about when we talk about hermeneutical injustice. So I can give more examples, but I think those are some of the really just key, um, the key concepts that inform the epistemic injustice work that I've been doing and that a lot of other people in bioethics have been doing for 
uh, for years in a, in what I actually happened to just find to be, you know, one of the really exciting uh, new uh, approaches in bioethics that's been kind of blossoming over the last 10 years. Um, so it's it's been really exciting to see it happen in real time over the last few years and get more sophisticated um, and, and to get expanded and taken up by so many different people from different perspectives. Um, so that's sort of like what I take to be, you know, the sort of 15 minute ish basic overview of the concept. Uh, no, uh, absolutely. And it's intriguing. It's, it's exciting. Um, uh, before I go to my uh, second question, um, for those who do not, do not know who Fricker is, can you just have like a quick overview of who Fricker is? Because obviously he is very influential in the different understandings and frameworks of epistemic injustice. So just can you explain who this individual is for those that do not know? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. So um, Miranda Fricker is a philosopher who um, is, I guess, now at, um, uh, I believe she actually just went to NYU and has been um, a really important figure in epistemology over the last 20 or so years in philosophy, um, even more over the last 10 years and sort of really, um, really firmly grounded in the traditions of analytic philosophy. Um, sort of like, you know, mid-century attempts to do, uh, you know, do abstract epistemology and to say we can use uh, abstract analysis to define what things like knowledge mean and what testimony mean. Um, and has also been, uh, so it's very like, very uh, well grounded in, the, in that tradition and also has a very keen sense in this book of the ways in which those approaches to epistemology have been really limiting and have not brought out some of the real questions that need to be asked, right? It's less about, you know, sort of, how can we analyze the concept of knowledge and more, what does it do, right? What is the social relevance of knowledge? Why do we care about knowledge? Um, and has been, has been uh, one of the really important voices in sort of moving that conversation in that direction, obviously among other people who are working on similar things. Um, and this book that I mentioned earlier that I will continue to sell as one of my favorite books in philosophy, just called Epistemic Injustice, Power and the Ethics of Knowing, that came out in, uh, I believe, 2007, um, and has, you know, again, been, you know, one of the most cited books in philosophy over the last 15 or so years. Um, so it's, uh, it's a very, um, I'm, a, I'm a strong admirer of her work. I mean, it's, it's been one of the most influential, um, influential bits of my own philosophical training um, is to really take in the importance of what's been done there and to try to use it to inform some of my clinical ethics work as well. Um, so I, um, I know that was sort of on the docket for today, but yeah, I mean, I think that, um, uh, I think that, uh, that uh, a lot of people, you know, certainly not just myself, have been heavily inspired by Miranda Fricker's work in, in terms of how they go about doing bioethics. Um, so I'm happy that people are, are, are paying even more attention now than they have been in the past. So you spent a lot of time thinking about um, epistemic injustice and its impact on care in the hospital. Can you describe a scenario where you think epistemic injustice was occurring and why that was? Yes, yeah, thank you. So, um, so yeah, in my clinical practice, and just to be clear, um, for maybe maybe it's worth just saying a, a minute about what actually my clinical practice is. Um, so I'm a practicing clinical ethicist, which means that I, I am a, a, cons a consultant on call in a hospital, and I take pages from doctors who want to discuss 
ethical challenges that they're having in their practice. I should say also we get consulted by nursing, we get consulted by social work, we sometimes get even consulted by patients and their family members. So while we spend most of our time with the medical staff, we do get consulted from uh, other groups in the hospital as well. Um, and so in that capacity, obviously, I'm often uh, witness to situations where distrust has arisen between patients and the teams that are taking care of them. Um, and so I think when, when I answer this question, I kind of want to frame my answer in terms of, you know, what, um, like what, what has affected the relationship between the patient and whomever it is that, that called the consult, right? What's gone on that makes us wonder, what, are, are we doing the right thing? Are we communicating right? Are we, doing, um, are we really doing the best we can for our patients? Um, so in that, in that sense, I'm, uh, I'm very interested in things like communication and what it looks like um, to have good communication and respectful communication between patients and clinicians, um, especially because we're talking about high stakes things. Um, we get consulted, you know, in situations where patients are refusing life-saving medical care, for example. Um, and one of the things we try to do is just understand, again, you know, what's caused the, the trust issue, if that's a trust issue, what's caused the um, people to feel like they haven't been heard appropriately, etc. So we've now put ourselves in the space of epistemic injustice, right? Because we're now talking about situations where people feel like they don't trust their doctor because they feel like their doctors ignored their experiences. They feel like they've been, um, you know, treated as less than or treated as a as a body or a set of symptoms rather than as a person. So I'll give you a, a, a sort of general sense of what some of these situations look like on the ground. Um, in my practice uh, a year or two ago, we had a patient who was a relatively young man, um, hospitalized for chronic chronic kidney um, condition exacerbation um, due to his not going to dialysis while he was an outpatient. Um, this is a, a familiar story on clinical ethics services, um, is patients who are not keeping up with the dialysis schedule, dialysis schedule and ending up kind of sick and needing medical care in the hospital. Um, and so we had been consulted because he had been saying in the hospital as well that he didn't want to go to dialysis and that they had, he hadn't been letting him take them take him. So they say, you know, we're not sure if we should be letting him refuse. We're not sure if we should just discharge him. He probably needs this. So we, we just don't know what to do here. And so I, I went to the bedside in my capacity as a clinical ethicist, and I talked to him for a while to understand what had been going on. Um, and, you know, we learn kind of a lot about um, experiences that people have had of feeling, you know, very uncomfortable physically, you know, due to, due to going to dialysis regularly. I don't know if people who haven't been on dialysis understand it, but it takes, you know, a lot of time out of your week. It's very, very physically draining. Um, it can leave you, you know, really exhausted and um, tired for the day or so after you go to a session. So it's a very um, chronic, burdensome thing. And a lot of people, because of that, you know, don't don't go when when it's indicated, even if they can go, right? They don't even go if it's a good thing. And so this is a, a problem that we want to understand at the very least and try to make it better for people, right? Um, 
But part of what I did in this situation is just trying to understand, like, how his not going fit into his broader situation. It turned out that he had a number of, you know, personal challenges that made it hard to keep regular um, with his with his um, with his dialysis schedule. Um, And so um, after I talked to him for a while, I began to realize that there's a lot going on more than just his not going his dialysis and that he had a lot of questions about his medical care that hadn't been well answered going forward. Um, And one of the other things that he actually told me that he liked is that I, you know, I sat down in a chair next to him and looked at him in eye level while he was in the hospital bed. Um, because people often don't do that when they're, you know, running around in the hospital taking care of multiple patients. Um, so in this situation, um, I, I found myself applying the epistemic injustice framework, right? Because there were a number of things about this, this, uh, this patient that really, um, that really made me concerned that he was, he was being ignored or he hadn't been given the right information. He hadn't been believed when he said he was having these medical problems, Right. Um, you know, so he was um, uh, a little bit on the large side. He was black and he was very direct when he talked to you. Um, and so one of the things he said is that people felt threatened by him. Um, and uh, that, in my experience of him, made some sense to me, right? That he is uh, exactly the person who is um, socially imagined by people to be somebody who they're not going to listen to in a situation like that. They're going to say, oh, he doesn't understand, or he, oh, he has low health literacy or something like that. Um, and so in that situation, I think there were very subtle epistemic injustices happening that people who were seeing him and taking care of him weren't like explicitly being prejudiced against him. They weren't saying, oh, I'm not going to listen to you because you have this, that, and the other characteristic, but I think they were very subtly um, and unintentionally kind of downgrading his testimony, right? Um, Not listening to him when he gave his reasons for not wanting to go, not listening to him and believing him and taking him seriously when he said the the process of going to dialysis was really burdensome. Um, So after a conversation with me and um, one of the other things I learned is that he hadn't actually had a good conversation with a kidney doctor in a long time. Um, we brought in a consulting doctor in the hospital who knew a lot about kidney diseases and a lot about transplantation to sort of help him uh, help lay out like a longer term path of what his medical care would look like, sort of, um, you know, him saying things like, well, what does dialysis matter if I'm going to get a transplant one day? Um, And then they had uh, somebody come in and really lay out what the process for kidney transplantation looks like, the challenges that you'll experience there and the kinds of questions that people ask, which, as I will say, uh, as I'm I'm sure you two are aware, um, uh, has its own injustices and huge ethical problems um, with equity um, in that transplantation that is, but at least sort of, you know, doing the work of just sitting down with this with this young man and saying, um, here's what the next X amount of years look like for you. Uh, and it turned out that after all of this, he had, you know, been voicing a new desire to like get back on the dialysis wagon and keep going because that was going to help him in his longer term goal of getting a kidney transplant. So um, I think in that situation, it's very unfortunate that it required 
multiple consultations with people who weren't the medical team taking care of him to get to that point. Um, and so I think there's a lot of structural questions in there as well um, that we can get into in a little bit. But I think in that situation, um, we saw, you know, a testimonial injustice happening before our eyes, right? Somebody having really legitimate questions and concerns about what his long-term care looked like um, and having that kind of just being oddly not believed by a lot of people around him and not taken seriously by a lot of people around him. So that's the kind of thing that I've seen when I... Um, when I look at, you know, my clinical work in ethics from an epistemic injustice perspective, those are the kinds of questions that end up getting highlighted and the kinds of solutions I end up trying to think about um, when I have those situations. Um, and uh, and I found it to be a fruitful approach. I find it to be helpful in, 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 you know, really understanding sometimes what makes people not trust their doctors and what makes people... Um, uh, not want to participate in medical care insofar as, you know, we want to actually get people to participate in medical care. Um, and again, sort of excerpting all the other serious inequities and issues that there are, there's also this problem, right, of trust and the way it affects who gets taken seriously when they go to the doctor. Um, so those are the kinds of things I've seen in my own practice. Yeah, no, thanks for those examples. They're really, really helpful. Um, so just switching gears a bit, we both really enjoyed um, the work that you've done around medical cannabis. And this is, of course, increasingly legal yep. now across many, many states. We're just looking it up. <laughs> it's been the majority of states now. Um, but looking at sort of how we examine whether medical cannabis works and evidence-based medicine and that kind of thing, um, what sort of falls short there? And um, how does epistemic injustice sort of play a role in that particular issue. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, um, it, this is just a sign of why epistemic injustice is such a useful framework, um, that it sort of takes the, takes these kind of like seemingly disparate questions and kind of pulls them together under this framework of like, there's a similar problem that's going on in a lot of different cases. Um, so I got interested in uh, the ethics of medical cannabis for a, a few reasons, but I think one of the main reasons I find myself wanting to talk about it is because now that it is becoming increasingly available, um, people are looking for guidance on what to do, right? They're sort of, and, and not just patients, right? Clinicians also are sort of like, I don't know how this affects my practice. I don't know how to learn more about this. I don't know how to respond appropriately when people are asking me about it. Um, and so I sort of wanted to, you know, take some steps to say, like, here's how we should think about evidential standards and here's how we should think about um, the way that demands for certain evidential standards might affect our patients. Um, so I hope that uh, I hope that this is work that that people find valuable uh, going forward as this becomes more and more of a commonly accepted thing. Um, so I'll I'll just talk through what I take to be the sort of the sort of problem here. Um, medical cannabis has become uh, um, extensively legalized for for medical purposes with relatively poor understanding of sort of the, the evidence-based efficacy of medical cannabis, right? There are a few very narrowly defined things that, that um, uh, the chemicals in cannabis have been used for treatment for. 
Um, so uh, it's been approved for, it's been pretty clearly documented that it's useful for controlling like nausea for patients who are on chemotherapy, right? So that's sort of like a classic example of how it gets used and how most people kind of agree that it works for. But here's the problem, right? Many people who take medical cannabis have reported benefits from using it that are like, that are that are things where it's actually not you know, approved for from a scientific perspective, right? So people have reported, um, some people in any case have reported that um, chronic pain disorders of certain kinds are, um, uh, are, uh, so some people have reported that cannabis has been useful for controlling symptoms of like certain chronic pain uh, syndromes. Chronic fatigue syndrome is another one that you've heard that you hear mentioned a few times. Um, but uh, attempts to scientifically demonstrate those benefits by using evidence-based medicine techniques like systematic review, uh, randomized clinical trials have been, you know, uncertain in their results at best. And so there's this question of sort of saying, well, on the one hand, the scientific perspective says we don't know enough about this, this substance to recommend it for these conditions. And people who've used it for those conditions saying, well, I have really good evidence that it works, the fact that it worked for me, right? Sort of um, saying I've actually experienced a cure, but the scientists are saying that couldn't have happened because we can't find an experimental benefit um, when we have, you know, done these more systematic attempts to pin down what's been going on um, and to pin down the specific benefits that cannabis provides to these patients. Um, so we have this situation where um, clinicians are using one epistemic standard, right, the standard of evidence-based medicine to say, this is not something that we feel is favorable from a risk benefit benefit perspective. It has uncertain benefits and it is associated with certain risks, such as the risks that come with smoking anything, the risks that um, that come along uh, from an addiction perspective for cannabis, um, which are often downplayed by, uh, by people inappropriately. Um, so the, the question is really about whose report of benefit we listen to here, at least one one question that you ask there. Is it the people who say, I've benefited, it worked for me, and therefore it's worth trying? Or do we listen to the people who say, there are no evidence-based medicine reasons to be using this, uh, this substance for cure? It's not a, a drug that, that has um, a positive risk-benefit ratio, as far as we can tell. Um, so... What I have said in some of my work is that this kind of represents a subtle epistemic injustice, right? Because experiences of cure are being disregarded, right? Experience, or rather, rather, less experiences of cure, I should say, and more experiences of clinical improvement of symptoms for certain conditions. Um, some people report benefits there. They say, I, <laughs> I have had clinical benefits from using this drug. And other people who are more scientifically motivated and who are studying published empirical literature say, well, you couldn't have because we have we don't have good evidence that it actually does that. It's got to be a placebo. It's got to be psychosomatic or something like that, um, which I should say as an asterisk is a, a whole different can of worms from an epistemic injustice perspective. 
Um, but uh, but maybe maybe we can get back to that if it comes up later. So from uh, from the perspective of using the epistemic injustice framework with respect to medical cannabis, it's really this dispute over evidential standards, right? Whose interpretation of good scientific evidence is actually guiding um, treatment decision making? Um, and because of the power dynamics that exist in medicine, turns out that it's almost always what the clinicians want, right? For various reasons, good and bad, um, I should say. Um, I don't, I don't want to be, you know, sort of overly negative on, on, on this as either, right? Because there are good reasons to insist for evidence um, and, to, and to try to get evidence that, that our treatments are effective. Um, it's just that in a situation like this, where we're often talking about chronic syndromes that are very difficult to control with using treatments that are already on offer, um, it's from the perspective of people who've had benefits from using medical cannabis, uh, it's very hard to stomach the idea that actually they haven't really had those benefits, that it's really something else, that they don't really understand their own experiences of, of clinical benefit. Um, so that's sort of one, uh, what I take to be one of, uh, one of the, um, I guess call it original arguments I've kind of made in this space. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, there's a few things really I'd like to follow up on. Um, sort of, so how do we gather this knowledge from patients into sort of a body of evidence that sort of meets the criteria? What's the best way to to they start taking that seriously i mean bearing in mind of course that you know providers have to balance that against risks because they are ultimately responsible if they're prescribing things um but do you think you know community engagement or are there any sort of approaches where we can try to prevent ourselves from propagating <laughs> this sort of injustice and try and sort of have a different approach so we have more sort of sympathy and more um, sort of more enlightened about other viewpoints and things like that. Yeah, I think it's a it's a good question and it's a challenging one because I think you sort of put your finger right on a, a key issue here, which is that doctors and clinicians in general are ultimately responsible for what they provide for their patients, what they offer, what they what they recommend. Right. So the answer to this isn't to just go willy-nilly offering people cannabis whenever they ask for it, right? The, the way to address this is to really take seriously a patient's history and what they know about this and what communities they are actually from, um, and to use that to sort of make more honest assessments about um, whether it's appropriate to offer cannabis, right? I think the key here is to actually listen to people's reasons and to hear what's going on, what their experiences have been, what they understand about what's out there, um, and then to use that to make an assessment about whether it would be appropriate to do that. Um, the idea of pooling sort of like collective experience here about what what clinical benefit from cannabis looks like is an important one. Um, and I think it's a, a problem that's become bigger and bigger as it's become more and more accepted for medical cannabis to be offered to patients. Um, so, right, so, okay, so yeah, I'll say a few words. So then there are, um, there are a number of things about 
medical cannabis as a substance that makes it very difficult to do the kind of research that doctors are normally looking for, right? So patients cannot be blinded from cannabis usually. It's very, very hard to do double-blind cannabis trials because most people know what it feels like to be intoxicated by cannabis and they can tell within, you know, five minutes whether they've been given a placebo, right? It's, it's, almost, it's almost funny to say it, but it's actually a really serious problem that clinicians have had in trying to do scientific estimations of the efficacy of cannabis. So um, one of the things that I think people say in this discussion is that cannabis just can't be held to exactly the same rules that we hold other drugs to because um, because there is, um, because with cannabis, there is a lot of experience that people often have with THC and with related um, related compounds that makes it very hard to say, okay, well, now we're going to, you know, give you a thing that's kind of like that, but that for the purposes of scientific investigation, we're going to, you know, not, uh, we're, you're going to not know what it is so that we can do double blind research. Um, so I think in cannabis, it's going to be very, very challenging to come up with good evidential standards from the perspective of evidence-based medicine as to what counts as um, counts as clinical benefit there. Um, I think we have to keep trying, obviously, and I think we have to also be honest about the fact that cannabis is out there and it's very important to a lot of people and that their experiences are going to make it hard to get the standard of evidence that we're used to when we talk about, um, you know, more traditional evidence-based medicine approaches to disease. So I don't think it's uh, it's an easy question. And I think it puts clinicians in an actually very uncomfortable space of having to really give their patients uh, a lot of, you know, sort of room to interpret what the medical recommendations are and what actually works for them in that situation. Um, I will also say just as cannabis becomes more and more legalized for non-medical purposes, I think the problem becomes slightly less because the sort of point, the sort of like traditional question of like, well, is there harm reduction reason for offering medical cannabis if they can get it safely? Isn't that better than getting it in unsafe situations? Those are going to become less significant concerns because it's going to just be easier to get cannabis for whatever purpose you want it for. Um, so I think some of the urgency that was associated with older questions in medical cannabis about offering it at all, given that um, uh, given that people are often trying to get it for non-medical purposes, um, becomes slightly less when it just becomes more available, whatever your reasons are. Um, so I know I feel like those are like a couple of a couple of sort of that's like a constellation of answers to that question um, that doesn't really have a, a really neat answer either. Um, but I think it's sort of like a, it's a question that's very much in its infancy in terms of being addressed. And I think it relates to some other things that we still need to pin down about what it means to do real evidence based medicine um, that are. And this is sort of an offshoot of some of those questions. Um, and more particularly, what does it mean to do evidence based medicine um, when the evidence is just very, very uncertain and unclear? I'm, I'm interested on your a perspective on the uh, maintenance of marijuana convictions and incarcerations that continue with the legalization of medical and recreational marijuana. What is um, 
in your uh, understanding the epistemic injustice interpretation of that. You have a legalized substance, but yet you still have individuals who were put in jail solely for that legalized substance, still um, convicted, still are carrying and having records and are still incarcerated. Uh, I'm curious about your thoughts on that. So I would actually argue that epistemic injustice is not the right framework to be using in those situations. I think we're dealing with um, uh, more straightforwardly corrective injustice there. And I, I, I realize that this could be like somewhat of a false dichotomy is that it's not necessarily easy to separate different kinds of injustice out. But from my perspective, as I was thinking about that question, I'm kind of like, I feel like we need to just stop like punishing people for not doing anything wrong, right? Like, which is really what happened in, you know, America for near a hundred years and still is happening in a lot of places and is still being maintained in even other places where we're not doing it actively anymore. Um, so from, you know, from the, the perspective of epistemic injustice, I mean, if people who are incarcerated for low level drug offenses are saying, you know, it's inappropriate to keep me incarcerated when this is legal and we agree that it's not a crime to do it anymore. And they're being ignored when they say that, which they almost certainly are. That would be a testimonial injustice, right? Like that's people being just straightforwardly ignored because they, you know, committed a crime technically in the past, um, which from an epistemic injustice perspective is, you know, obviously a wrong. It's a wrong in terms of somebody's, um, background and identity and uh, position, you might also say. Um, but I think the, the wrongs there are primarily just, um, just carceral harms, right? They're harms that have just happened to people by inappropriate uses of state power, regardless of whether or not their testimony has been believed or whether their interpretations are, are, are being, you know, equally included in society. Um, so I, I would, you know, say that there could be epistemic injustices in this situation, but I feel like the um, the primary injustices really are just, um, you know, just general ignorance towards what it means to correct historical injustices. Um, so whatever whatever epistemic injustices are involved in correcting historical injustices. Um, are the ones that are occurring in that situation. But I actually think the injustices are primarily not epistemic at this point. They're just um, inappropriate, uh, you know, inappropriate, unethical legalization efforts that ignore real problems in terms of, you know, offering, offering fun to people who want it, right? It's like on the one hand, uh, um, we recognize that people shouldn't be punished for cannabis anymore, nor should they ever have been, but, um, we're not actually doing the things necessary to really live up to that. And I think it's primarily, uh, not primarily an epistemic problem, but I think there could be epistemic components to it. Um, so I don't know. I hope, I hope that, that kind of, that kind of makes sense as a response. Um, I think the reason I thought it was an interesting question is because it does kind of brush up against this question of when does an injustice become less an epistemic injustice and more just like, something more tr straightforwardly wrong on like a more familiar in a more f morally familiar sense of wrong um so i think it's an interesting question it kind of raises this sort of um raises this this other question about how epistemic injustice relates to other injustices that i don't have uh, an extremely nuanced answer for other than to say 
they often co-occur, right? They often occur in the same cases. Case can be unjust for multiple reasons. Um, and I think that's probably what's going on if there's epistemic injustices there. I hope that, I hope that, that helped a little. <laughs> um, I think it's an interesting question, but I think that was the best I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to offer there. Oh, no. Um, uh, thank you for sharing. And, and speaking of uh, just in general justice issues, I know this um, that was a more of a question regarding, of course, our incarceration uh, history towards you know, black and brown individuals, um, our legal system and the biases that, you know, lies within and the structural uh, racism that still lies within um, between, you know, police relations as well as uh, black and brown uh, communities as well. Uh, but setting that aside, um, do you think uh, addressing um, epistemic injustice sorts out all justice issues in medical care? So particularly shifting from more the legal um, justice oriented type of dynamics to um, medical care as a whole. And um, based on your thoughts on that, why or why not? Yeah, so this question about, you know, how far does working to address epistemic injustices go for promoting justice more generally? Um, I think we'll be able to give a further answer to that question if we talk about some strategies that might be used to address epistemic injustice. But I will just say that um, I don't think that solving epistemic injustice were that something that could actually be done i don't think that would solve all justice problems i think there are massive socioeconomic inequalities that combine with epistemic injustices but also function independently and um, so you know you can't be treated you can't be ignored by a doctor if you can't see a doctor right like you don't have a chance to be um, to have your pain report disbelieved if you never see palliative care and you never have a chance to, you know, discuss your clinical situation, right? So if we treat our patients with purpose, perfect epistemic injustice, they might still not be able to come see us, right? They might not be able to even get in the room in the first place. Um, so I think there are um, key problems that would still exist from a justice perspective in healthcare um, if we solved epistemic injustice. Um, but I will also say that some questions about justice might actually be solved. So, sorry, some questions about non-epistemic justice issues might actually be solved by addressing epistemic injustice. So um, people, I think there's some evidence that doctors make prejudicial um, you know, prejudicial judgments about who gets what medical care, right? Let's say that's just true. Um, if it turns out that we correct some of prejudice, some of those prejudicial judgments about who gets medical care, um, health outcomes might end up being more equal in the long term, right? So some of those problems that we have about unequal access to health care could be solved if people ended up less sick in the long term, right? There were fewer opportunities to distrust doctors because people just didn't get as, as seriously ill as they get older, right? So if we can bring people into the medical fold, get them better medical care early on, and also, you know, hear their problems so that we address the right problems, we might end up with less chronic illness out there in society, right? And I think I will also say, I mean, one of the things that's often said about epistemic injustice is that 
Um, it causes a lack of trust between patients and doctors, and that leads patients to do things that might not be rational from a clinical perspective, but are understandable. So for example, if you don't trust your doctor, you're more likely to not go back for a follow-up, right? So if we promote epistemic justice, we might promote follow-up, right? We might have people who are more willing to go back to the doctor after they've seen the doctor one time. And that means they're more likely to follow appropriately over the course of many years, and health problems are more likely to be caught later on, earlier rather than later, before they become serious, and while they can still be you know, managed using non-invasive medical options that you can just take in the course of your daily life. Right, so one of the things that I think is really potentially useful about epistemic injustice is that while it doesn't solve all justice issues in medical care, it might promote equality of access to medical care. It might make people more willing to follow with clinicians because it makes them more trustworthy, trusting of their clinicians, right? If you're being heard and you're really, um, you feel like your clinician is on your team and is really interested in helping you and is hearing you out, you're much less likely to not want to see them, which means, rather, you're much more likely to want to see them again, which means you're more likely to have um, health problems discovered before they become critical problems requiring hospitalization and ICU level care and whatever else happens there. So it might go some way to promoting health justice if we were to address epistemic injustice. But I would also say, kind of just pick, you know, circling back to the original point, that there are absolutely injustices in healthcare access that are independent of um, the clinical epistemic injustices that I've been talking about so far. There are historical trends that we can't settle by getting some patients to be more trusting of doctors by, by living up to their trust uh, in doctors. So while it wouldn't solve all problems, um, I think it might go some length to sorting out some of the underlying issues that cause um, that cause other justice-related problems in healthcare. How can the lens of epistemic injustice be used as a tool in uh, during post-COVID-19 or whatever particular phase of COVID-19 you like to uh, um, you know point where we are currently? So one of the things that often causes patients to be disbelieved in their reports of symptoms to clinicians is those symptoms being kind of general and nonspecific, right? So if you present at a doctor's office multiple times saying, oh yeah, I've just been like a little fatigued recently, right? Doctors are not going to take that symptom quite as seriously, right? Because there's so many things that can cause fatigue. There's so many different kind of little things that could lead a person to be fatigued. It's just not high up on doctor's list of like, this is a huge priority for me to go after and really dis really understand in detail. Um, and so oftentimes I think epistemic injustice has tracked kind of like hard to characterize nonspecific symptoms like pain um, and discomfort or fatigue or things like that. So those are some serious epistemic you know, epistemic injustice conditions, their risk factors for epistemic injustice is having a lot of, you know, general kind of uh, symptoms that could be caused by a lot of things. And so one of the, the things from that perspective in talking, so that's general, right, in talking about the question of like, how is epistemic injustice a frame that is useful for thinking about issues in the, the COVID-19 pandemic, right? 
So one of the things that, that I actually saw as I was doing some research in, um, in my uh, medical cannabis project is um, an initial report actually came out not so long ago showing that um, patients are now reporting being disbelieved by providers, by clinicians when, um, when they report symptoms of long COVID, right? When patients go into a doctor's office and say, yeah, I had COVID like three months ago and I'm just, I'm still really fatigued all the time. Um, even though clinicians understand that long COVID is real and that it exists, um, in those situations, providers have actually been documented to be kind of downgrading that testimony, right? To not be listening to um, uh, listening to reports that long COVID is happening, right? There's some disbelief because these are very, you know, kind of nonspecific chronic symptoms that we're talking about. Um, so I think insofar as one of the things that we're really seeing a lot of now in healthcare is just like, the the broad implications of so much additional illness in society coming to roost in terms of exacerbation of like chronic diseases that people have already had um, and just just like additional clinical burdens due to some of the what we're learning about the long-term effects of covid and it's really important to make sure we're screening for people who have long COVID, right? It's really important to respect that diagnosis and understand it because it's going to be a really serious burden um, in our healthcare system for a very long time to come. Um, and so one of the things that I think the epistemic injustice framework can add in the, you know, call it the post-COVID world. I know that's that's a, that in and of itself is kind of a fraught term, uh, as Kirk just alluded to. But um, one of the things that we can use this framework for is to say we need to actually start paying attention to um, the the medium scale or or um, uh, the sort of medium scale effects of COVID, right? Not not people who've had been critically ill for months in the hospital necessarily, and not people who have had, you know, relatively low symptom, low burden infections, but these people who have had chronic health conditions exacerbated or caused by COVID. Um, that's going to be a really important part of like managing this, this disease as we go into the future. And so the epistemic injustice framework has actually begun to be utilized to sort of pin down some of those problems, right? To say, well, one of the risks we're going to have treating long COVID is clinicians just not taking these symptom reports seriously. So we need to think about making people more aware of spotting long COVID and making, did you have COVID part of the standard in interview question, especially when patients are starting to report some of these long-term fatigue symptoms or long-term exacerbations of pre-existing underlying conditions. So that's just one thing I think we can say. Um, I make no, you know, certainly make no claims to being exhaustive on that score, but that's one piece of research that actually came out recently that I thought was really, um, really valuable and really useful in thinking through what this framework can do in the, in the wake of the acute phase of the COVID pandemic. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I hadn't really thought about that. Um, I suppose just one last thing, maybe before we let you go, and this has been great. Um, in terms of like, even thinking about COVID and, you know, vaccine uptake and things like that. Um, maybe we could have done better on that front, sort of listening to people's testimony about why they weren't taking the vaccine and done better there. I mean, it's easy in retrospect to look back on all these things and think, you know, what we need to do. But 
I'm just thinking, was that, a, oh, you know, wasn't maybe the the typical application of it, but it's almost like we didn't um, really listen. And, you know, of course, it's different because people are sort of getting their information from so many places. Um, um, we're inclined to sort of um, dismiss that a little bit. But I sort of think maybe that's another example. Yeah, it's a challenging, I think the, that is a challenging space for epistemic injustice to work in because you're going to walk this really fine line between, on the one hand, making sure we hear out people's concerns and we understand what's motivating their reasons. And on the other hand, not allowing epistemic injustice to sort of validate propaganda, right? Which I think it very much does not want to do and we should not be using it to do. Uh, so there's really complicated questions about how to walk that tightrope. Um, and I think, you know, you're right in that what we need to do is at the bare minimum, make sure we listen to people's concerns and hear what's going on and make intelligent, careful choices about when we need to be correcting people and when we need to just let, you know, let well enough alone and say, this is not a fight we're going to pick, right? So I think there are complicated questions there. I don't pretend to be an expert on exactly how to do that. Um, but I'd say that there probably have been um, inappropriate responses to questions that people have had about vaccine efficacy, even if it doesn't amount to saying, you know, um, we're going to just ignore these questions or we're going to just automatically validate people who are skeptical of vaccines, right? It's important, it's about engaging, hearing out people's concerns and being very specific about the responses that we make. And also just being on the same page about what the risks of it are, what the benefits of it are, why we're actually doing it, why we're asking people to get vaccinated. Um, so I think that, um, I think that while I wouldn't necessarily wanna say that there are epistemic injustices happening there, I think there's still possibly value from using the framework to think through some of the communication dynamics that happen when people, you know, voice hesitancy about getting vaccinated. Uh, we just want to make sure that we understand what people's concerns actually are. And that's just a, a necessary first step toward um, toward alleviating the, the problem. And I will say um, this is, this is a, a little bit tangential, but just an interesting little nugget that I want to toss out there. So. One of the reasons that I actually got interested in the question about evidential standards in medical cannabis is because I read, a, this is a popular article, it's not, this is not like peer reviewed, but I, I read a while ago a popular article showing that uh, people who label themselves like medical cannabis advocates um, express a very disproportionately high level of vaccine skepticism. Um, that that population voices a lot of hesitation about vaccines due to concerns about how, you know, medical authorities have um, unjustly privileges, privileged certain treatment modalities over others and sort of saying, okay, well, where does the money go? And what did they do when cannabis wasn't profitable, right? What did they, what did they do when people formed their prejudices that cannabis was not useful and was not worth hearing out and something actually worth punishing people for doing. And so one of the reasons I got interested in that question is in thinking through the role that um, ignoring people's, you know, people's evidential perspectives in healthcare plays in driving distrust and driving lack of wanting to engage in clearly clinically and 
um, clinically beneficial and beneficial from a public health perspective, um, medical interventions. So um, that was sort of one of those like realizations and one of those little tidbits that got me interested in that. It's like, if by ignoring requests for medical cannabis, we're driving vaccine hesitancy, I mean, are we driving that when we just ignore people's concerns overall, right? Are we teaching people not to trust doctors? And so, and, and to not trust, you know, medical authorities and, and legitimate scientists. So thinking through responding to some of that is sort of like what motivated me to start asking questions about how should we be responding to requests for medical cannabis. Um, so I think there's a, another, yeah, that's another, another point that kind of motivated some of what I had um, been asking there. So I, I, I think it's an interesting question. Well, thank you so much. This has been really good. No, thank you very much, Ryan. Uh, such, a, such a really engaging um, and very thought-provoking conversation. Uh, thanks again. Thank you for listening to another great conversation on bioethics in the margins. This podcast is hosted by Amelia Barwise and Kirk Johnson. Our producer is Elizabeth Chung. Our editor is Nicole Strand. Our theme music was written and produced by Pablo Cuartas. And we are grateful for the assistance of Wendy Jung and Benjamin Foster. Join us again next time.